Amen. Thank you, JJ. Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you. Good to see you. Before we read our scripture text together, let me just uh, do a couple things. For those of you that I don't know, I want to introduce myself. I'm Rob Sweet, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. Um, and if, not, if I've not met you or we haven't been able to speak in a while, if you'd feel comfortable coming down front sometime when I'm teaching, I would love to get to know you and put a name with a face. So there's an invitation to do that. I would love to connect with you. Uh, second of all, I just want to give you guys an update on, on where we are with um, the new mask mandate. I should say the old mask mandate that's been made new yet again in Williamson County. You may be aware of that. And the intention is that they will keep this mask mandate through the end of the year. So what does this mean for us? Well, the mask mandate is the same as it was earlier this year, which is to say, uh, you know, you probably read the fine print in public spaces, centers of worship are excluded, but they do strongly encourage masks and even in places of worship. And so that's the posture that we're taking here. And I know it's a fine line to walk. There are people that have strong opinions on different sides of things, but we want to strongly encourage you to wear a mask when you're in our um, lobby area, when you're coming to and, to and fro, which is really where it's not possible to social distance. Now, when you get in here, you can see there's plenty of room here to spread out. And if you spread out and feel comfortable taking off your mask, you're welcome to do that. Um, we're not requiring masks, but we are strongly encouraging masks. And it's important in this season where case numbers are going back up and our government has asked us to strongly encourage masks that we are doing that and we're very intentionally. Um, just a reminder also for those of you that are online, a great place for you to be a part of what is happening in this room, even if you're not comfortable being here or it's not safe for you to be here. And I want to encourage anyone that is in that situation to utilize that opportunity to be online. It is a great option. So multiple options of how you can worship with us in this season. And uh, we're going to keep walking in this together, trusting God step by step. All right. So I've been uh, watching us you know, do some standing and sitting today, and I was tempted not to have you stand again, but, it's, but we're going to because this is the word of God, and we're going to stand for the word of God. And so I want to ask you once again, and then you can get comfortable, okay? Then you can get comfortable. We stand because these are the very words of Jesus, and we come under the authority of Jesus Christ this morning as his body. And so I'll lead us and we'll read together. Our scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the living word of God for us today. Father, would you help us to know what it means to follow Jesus in this text? Amen. You may be seated. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did nothing less than blaze a trail for a new humanity. Jesus unveiled a whole new way of being human. And through the words of this sermon, he is saying to his disciples, let me show you a way of living that will seem completely upside down. It will seem completely backwards. It will seem completely illogical, both to you and to the world around you. But make no mistake, Jesus is saying, my words are the words of life. 
this path, this upside down, but actually right side up path is the path of life because it's the path of the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach it. He lived it. He, in essence, was the embodiment of his own words. And so now 2,000 years later, and this always strikes me when I get up here to teach, 2,000 years later, the Holy Spirit is re-speaking the words that the Holy Spirit originally spoke thousands of years ago. We have these words preserved for us. This is why we can say it's the living word of God for us today because it's the breath of God. It's the, the Spirit speaking to us through this text. And we've come to a place in the sermon that is certainly one of the most radical and disruptive texts for followers of Jesus. It begs the question, does Jesus actually expect us to live this way? John Stott described this section of the Sermon on the Mount as the highest point of the sermon for which it is both admired and most resented. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Spirit more compelling. I want to urge us this morning to press in, to ask ourselves, do we honestly believe Jesus is the path of life? I think that's a valid question. You know, some of you in the room don't honestly believe Jesus is the path of life. And, and I, I say that without judgment coming from me. You're pursuing other paths of life, and maybe you're here giving lip service to Jesus in a sense, or just because it's something to do, or you're here for your family or other reasons. But many of us are here because we honestly believe Jesus is the path of life. And so I want to say to us this morning, if we believe that, let's follow him. I'm being serious. Here's how we're going to work through the text this morning. Explanation, illustration, application. The explanation is, let's talk about what this means in its original context. This is what we do week in, week out here at Fellowship. Illustration is to really get this one, to understand it. You've got to be able to visualize it. You've got to be able to almost visceral, viscerally understand it, not just intellectually understand it. And that's why I have two illustrations today, and then we'll apply it to our own lives because we are now the audience. We are the disciples of Jesus. Let's start with the explanation. Verse 38, we'll put it on the screen. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let me pause right there for a minute. Jesus' pattern in this section of the sermon is, you've heard that it was said, and he'll quote an Old Testament passage, and he says, but I say to you, and then he'll give his words that represent a fulfillment of the law. And then he'll give some examples about what it looks like to live that way. And he follows the exact same pattern today. So just be, be looking for that. So the first thing he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's not just pulling, you know, cultural ideals. He's quoting the Old Testament. Now, you do see the same concept in other places outside of the Old Testament. If you remember st studying the Code of Hammurabi back in middle school or high school, this is in there. It's this idea. It's, it's essentially just saying, let's be fair to people. But let's, let me read to you where it comes from in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, three places that are all a part of the law of Moses. Here's what Exodus 21, 23 to 25 says. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy 19.21, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. To our modern ears, this sounds so detached from our lives, we might even dare to use the word barbaric, but let's put it in the context of what God was doing at this moment in history. When God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they were not a people. They weren't a nation. They they were an extended family that had grown over time that had been enslaved by the ruling power. And they are set free through the miracles of the the 10 plagues. And then they're in the wilderness. And we we know because we've walked through the series through the summer of the wilderness, God is using the wilderness to form them into a people. So they get to Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. A nation needs a constitution. A a nation needs government, a nation needs laws, and a nation needs a justice system. And that's exactly what the law of Moses is. It's essentially the constitution for the nation of Israel that represents what God wants from them as his people in that context. So when the law of Moses said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, we hear that and we're like, oh my goodness, how violent. That statement is not promoting violence. In fact, it was doing the opposite. It was curbing violence by establishing justice. Because think about the alternative. In that culture, without some kind of rule of justice or rule of law, if someone hurts you or wounds you, you're going to strike them back and probably do worse in your anger. And so the violence is going to escalate and escalate and never stop. The rule of justice in the law of Moses says there is a stopping place. There is this principle of equality. Retributive justice is what we might call it today, or equal retribution. What is equal retribution? Well, you've probably heard the phrase, let the punishment fit the crime. That's this principle. God was giving Israel a standard of justice based on this principle of retributive justice or equal retribution. Now, These words were not meant to be enacted by vigilantes. So if you were in a fight, someone was trying to steal your your purse or your wallet and they hurt you, you weren't supposed to quote, you know, the law of Moses and hurt them back at the spot. No, this was for the justice system. This was for the government. This is not for individuals to take it upon themselves to be the law. Now, later in Israel's history, they converted from physical punishment to financial fines. But the principle of equal retribution remained the same. And in fact, the same principle in various forms undergirds virtually all forms of justice in every culture in the world, including our own up to this day. So think about our own justice system. We have different levels of punishment compared to the crime. So if someone accidentally injures someone and it's a minor injury, that's going to be one kind of punishment. If someone murders someone else, that's going to be a much steeper punishment. The goal of our justice system is as close as possible, let the punishment fit the crime, you see. It's the same principle. Now, I want you to think about this. 
An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is not just some old barbaric way of thinking. It is justice in its elemental form, in a sense, in its purest form. So what Jesus is doing in these words, and let this shock you a little bit, is Jesus is doing nothing short of shaking the very foundations of justice, which societies had been built on, even God's own nation, for thousands and thousands of years. Why would Jesus do this? What was he trying to say? I think that will get more clear as we work through the text. Let's now look at the first half of verse 39. So I'll reread 38 and we'll go into verse 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, that's a hard statement. And at first, it sounds just like passivity. Do not resist. You know, it sounds like standing there and doing nothing and letting evil do whatever it wants. And haven't we learned through human history that those who stand by when evil, you know, does bad things are the guilty ones, so to speak? There's some saying of that. I want to encourage you on something. I want you to see something that this statement is not passive. How do I know this? Well, you have to look at the examples that Jesus gives. In order to understand what Jesus means when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, you have to look at the five examples he gives right after that that explains, here's what it looks like to do not resist the one that is evil in real life. Now, look at this. This gets very interesting. Second half of verse 39 through verse 42. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Example number one. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Number two. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Number three. Give to the one who begs from you. Number four. Do not refuse the one who would borrow. Number five. In none of these actions is Jesus describing passivity. He's not saying just take it and stand there and do nothing. He's saying something more scandalous than that, more radical than that. In each of these five, he is saying, I want you to do something proactive, not passive, but it's an intentional act of grace that he is leading them toward. Guys, there is nothing passive about grace. Grace is active, you see. What does grace actually mean? Unmerited favor, undeserved gift. That's what grace is. Now, I want you to see the shocking act of grace in each of these five statements. I'm going to run through them very quickly. Number one, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why does it say right cheek? Like, what's the significance there? And by the way, when you're studying your Bibles and you see these little details that stand out to you, dig into them. There's usually reasons why those old, always reasons why those old details are there. In, in this culture, as in our culture, the vast majority of people were right-handed. I think it's 90% or so in our culture today. Um, I think it was very similar. I don't know why it would be different. But, but I know, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the right hand, you know, it was, it was the dominant hand. If you are slapped on the cheek, more often than not, if you're going to be slapped this way with an open-handed slap, you're going to get slapped on the left cheek. Jesus is saying if someone slaps you on the right cheek, here's what that means. You've gotten a backhanded slap. Because if a slap comes at you this way, backhanded slap, it's going to hit your right cheek. And why does that matter? 
In that culture, the backhanded slap was one of the most disrespectful things you could do to a person. It was a sign of inferiority. Someone who would give a backhanded slap was saying, you are nothing but a, a servant to me. You are so far below me that you're, you're like my slave. It's just get in your place. Literally adding insult to injury. Jesus is saying, if you're treated this way, don't strike them back, but don't just passively stand there. Actively give them something. Your other cheek. Shocking act of grace. Number two, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In those days, a man would have two primary garments. There was the undergarment, which is the tunic, and the outer garment, which is the cloak, or sometimes called the robe. And the robe, the cloak, was your most important possession because most people in that cultural context were very poor and they only had one. And that cloak would protect you from the elements and it would double as your blanket to keep you warm at night. There was actually a little stipulation in that culture, their legal system, that if you were going to sue someone, you could sue them for all they had except their cloak except their robe, and that would have been cruel and unusual to take their cloak. It was against the law. Jesus is saying, go beyond the law. Give both your tunic and your cloak, your most important possession. In other words, he's saying, just, just strip yourself bare if, if you're treated this way. Become that vulnerable. Another shocking act of grace. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is the third example. It doesn't seem that bad to us until you realize the cultural context. The Roman military, which occupied the land, had legal authority in Roman law to conscript anyone, a Jew or anyone that was subservient to them, and force them to carry the military pack of one of their soldiers on the road. But the law had a limitation. The Romans could only force you to carry their pack for one mile. After that, you're free to go. Jesus is saying, do twice as much as what's required of you by the Roman law, even though you don't have to. And check this out. Even though they are your enemy, even though they're the foreign power that's occupying the promised land. Oh my goodness. Can you feel the shock? It's like, no, oh, Jesus, why would we aid and abet the enemy? We will not. Yet another shocking act of grace. By the way, this is just for fun. When I worked at Chick-fil-A, back in 2005, McDonald's came out with their Southern-style chicken sandwich, okay? A direct attempt to knock off Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich. Not nearly as good. But it was a direct attempt. And I was at their corporate office during this season. I was there until 2006. And in 2005, we started having conversations. We said, you know, this sandwich isn't that good. But it's just a matter of time before some competitor could come up with a product that could be real closer or equally as good. And we realized our competitive advantage is not the products we sell. Our competitive advantage is the people that we have. No other quick service restaurant chain can duplicate the quality of people that Chick-fil-A has. I'm seeing thumbs up in the background. 
That's the competitive advantage. So literally, we ask this question, how do we leverage the competitive advantage to create such a gap between us and the competition that there's no way they could possibly catch it, no matter what kind of sandwich they invent? And so we rolled out a whole new level of customer service that went above and beyond the customer's expectations, and we called it second mile service. From Matthew chapter five, and we would quote the verse in our trainings. It was beautiful. I used to teach this. We had a little cheesy video of a Roman soldier walking along and conscripting this guy, and you know Jesus' words. I mean, it was it was wonderful. That was for fun. And by the way, that's stuff you cannot get in any other church. I'm just saying. <laughs> now, back on track. Two more examples really briefly. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Begging for money automatically puts someone below you, does it not? You know, the the beggar is beneath the the person that they're begging from. Um, A a borrower, when you borrow money, you're indebting yourself to the the lender. It's a a position of, of power that's happening here. Jesus is saying, listen, freely give when people ask. You know, don't stand in superiority above the beggar or above the borrower. Rather, lower yourself to look them eye to eye and share what you have because you don't deserve it any more than they do. And you're thinking the same thing the disciples were thinking. But, but what if they're going to misuse the money I give and they're going to spend it on drugs and other things and, and they're going to take advantage of me and all these kinds of things. And, and uh, you know. Of course, there's room for wisdom, but I don't want the shock effect to miss you guys. This is very intentional on Jesus' part, how he's wording this. This is another shocking act of grace. Now, let's have some straight talk for a few minutes. These things bother us. They should bother us. We are are wired internally as human beings for fairness. And guys, listen, listen clearly. Not a single example Jesus said is, is fair at all. Why should we have to be the ones that sacrifice? Why should we have to be the ones that lower ourselves and turn the other cheek and do all these things? There's no life in that. This is how we think. Grace, by definition, is unfair. It is unmerited favor. Now we think, well, that, that, that's fine in church, but you know you can't act this way in real life. And then we'd say a society certainly cannot function this way. It's not practical. And honestly, like it doesn't even seem right. Like it doesn't seem right for people to get away with stuff like this. You know what do you mean they're gonna do something terrible and and, and I'm gonna give them my cloak? A society cannot operate this way. Of course, that is true if you're talking merely about a human society. But Jesus is not talking about that. His audience is not the the, the governor. His audience is not the formal legal system of the government of the day. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Remember the whole message of Jesus is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's addressing people that he's identified as people of the kingdom, citizens of a new kingdom. And, And he's saying, listen, In God's kingdom, fairness is not the operating system. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Do you desire this? You better desire it. Because if you want fairness to be the operating system of God's kingdom, none of us are in. None of us are in. 
Grace is the operating system of God's kingdom. Unmerited favor. Shocking acts of grace are the norm in the kingdom of God because they reflect the heart of God himself. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of the iceberg. We've been using this illustration of the iceberg throughout this series. I think it's been really helpful. We'll put this on the screen. What's above the waterline? The the 10% that Jesus is getting after, give people what they deserve. That's human justice. That's what he's saying. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There is a place for that in human society. Absolutely. This is the law of Moses, which came from God. This is not a bad system for a government whose responsibility is to provide protection and security to broken people living in a broken planet. Give people what they deserve. Jesus is going beyond that. Put the next slide up. What's underneath the waterline? Jesus is saying, give people what they don't deserve because this is God's heart. Human justice needs to be give people what they deserve, but you need to know God's heart. And the rule of the kingdom of God is give people what they don't deserve. Inexplicable grace, life-changing mercy, love without condition. This is the law of the kingdom. Above the waterline is the law of broken humanity in good justice systems. Below the waterline is the law of God for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we are to be agents of God's kingdom. We are to be salt and light. We are to make little glimpses of God's kingdom show up in the real world. This is why we are to live this way because it represents God's heart. We are image bearers of God. What does God's heart look like? It's love. Now, am I going too far with this? You'd say, well, what about judgment? You know, there's gonna be a judgment. Yes, yes, all that's true. But listen, how do we know that God's heart is giving people what they don't deserve? Because God came to earth. And that's exactly what Jesus did. From the moment he was born until the moment he died and beyond, Jesus gave. He gave and he gave. And it had nothing to do with fairness. It had nothing to do with equality. In fact, I want you to think about this, and this is where this passage is going to explode in your mind if you really understand this. Each of the five examples was done to Jesus. Think about it. Think about it. They struck him. They insulted him. They gambled away his clothing. They stripped him naked. They forced him to carry the worst piece of military equipment in that culture, the cross, his own cross. And what did Jesus do in return? He died for them. He gave himself all the way, held nothing back. He he made these shocking acts of grace look like elementary school. He hung on that cross willingly, and then he said, Father, forgive them. Now, who is the them? It's the Roman soldiers that pounded nails into his flesh. It's the Jewish Pharisees and experts of the law who conspired to get rid of him. It was Jesus' own disciples who abandoned him at his greatest time of need. And it's you and me. Father, forgive them. 
they don't understand what they're doing. So if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to know what would Jesus do, this is how we are to live, as hard as it is. And, and this is really important that you understand this. Jesus is not saying live this way because it makes you a nicer person, because it makes you a, a, you know, a, a better person. He, he's saying live this way because this is the heart of God. Live this way because this is how God lives. That this is, this is the, the law of the new kingdom that you're being called in. You're being uh, called to represent God on this planet. And so that's what Jesus did for 30 plus years of life. He was God in the flesh, literally. And then when he ascended from, from, uh, from earth into heaven, the call comes on us, the church, to be the body of Christ, to incarnate the heart of God. Now, I've explained it. I want to give you a little bit of an illustration that I think may help you understand in a different way. I want you to imagine that these two ropes represent human lives. And one of these lives harms the other and, and diminishes the life. Now, in our justice system, what we wish we could do is make this person whole again. In fact, there's even a phrase in our justice system that, that says, you know, what's the right punishment to, to, to give the victim, make the victim whole? We use that phrase, make the victim whole. Guys, I want you to think about this. Can we make the victim whole? No. No, it doesn't matter how much money they get. It doesn't matter how, how you know, hurt and harmed the, the, the perpetrator is. You cannot make them whole. The best we can do, according to human justice, the best we can do in our system is to wound the person that did the harm to an equal level of the person who was harmed. That's good justice. Do you see how empty even our best justice system is? In other words, what we're essentially saying is the closest we can get to wholeness is equal brokenness. And so the cycle continues. There's another harm. There's another wound. So we have to harm again, punish again, discipline again, all these things. Now, after a while, the cycle continues, and what's left could hardly be considered human beings. This is where Jesus comes in, guys. And, and Jesus says, there's a different way. There's a new way. It's radical. You, you won't, you're not going to believe this. Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to do when you are harmed, when you are wounded, rather than striking back or rather than just sitting back and taking it. I want you to take part of you. And I actually want you scandalous, radical. I want you to give of yourself. I want you to not even think about what you deserve and what's coming for that person. And I want you to give of yourself so to, to make that other person a little more whole. Do you see? Now we look at this and say, but, 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 how? How? When I was studying this text and, and even thinking of this illustration, I, I could not get the story of Jean Valjean out of my mind from Victor Hugo's great novel, Les Miserables. 
me recap the story, and we're going to play a short clip from this story. Les Mis tells the story of a man, Jean Valjean, whose life is radically transformed by a shocking act of grace. The book starts out, Jean Valjean's in prison. He's serving a long, hard sentence for stealing a loaf of bread. He finally serves his penalty, right? Retribution equal to the crime in their eyes. And he's released. The problem is he's marked. He has to carry around this certificate that says, I'm a convict, and he can't get good work, and he's mistreated, and all these things, until a kind bishop invites him into his home, shares a warm meal, shares a bed, gives a bed for the night. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean starts sneaking around the house. Let's see what happens next. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, 
You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With the silver I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. And of course, Valjean goes on to become truly a new man, a whole man. He goes on to live a life of generosity and a life of sacrifice. And this is a powerful picture of what it looks like to live out this text. When we encounter this invitation of Jesus and these words of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's exactly what it is. It is an invitation of Jesus for his followers. If we're honest, the thought that goes through our mind is, what what about my wholeness? If I live this way, What about my needs? I don't want to use wooden spoons. What about my wholeness? The answer you find in Scripture is trust God for your wholeness. Think about it this way. What kind of person could live this way, could live like that bishop did? Only a person who has entrusted their entire life to Jesus Christ. Only a person who believed the words of Jesus when he said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And so this is why it's so important to understand this text, like all of the gospel, is good news, not good advice. In other words, it's not meant to be like, oh, here's here's helpful tips for living. No, it's good news. What do I mean by good news? Here's the good news in this text. In Jesus Christ, we all have a bishop who instead of accusing us, said, take the candlesticks. You are now redeemed. I have bought you. You are a new man. You are a new woman. True wholeness is a work that only God can do. You cannot make yourself whole. You can't look at your own life and say, I'm going to make myself whole. No, the call of Jesus is always giving of yourself, is always lessening yourself. And yet, what the gospel says, the gospel says there there is one who is whole and can never diminish. There is one who gave his life for you so you can give your life to others. And if you will attach your life to his life, if you will abandon your own salvation, if you will give yourself to Jesus and follow his call and identify with him, you will be whole because Jesus is the whole. He is the true human being. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Jesus lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the call to life. This is the new way. These are the words of Jesus. I want to invite you to meditate on these for a few moments. Put a question or two on the screen as we have been doing through this series. We'll give you a couple of minutes just to think and pray and ask God to help. Two questions and then a prayer. Number one, do I believe these words of Jesus are for me? Why or why not? I think that is a valid question. And for some of you in the room or watching online, this might be the very most important question anyone's ever asked you. Question two, if they are for me, what is keeping me from living them? What is keeping you from living them? And there's a prayer for you to pray as well during this time. Let's reflect on this together.